All right, if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 48? We're going to be looking at 48 and a little bit of 49 tonight. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the little black pew Bible in front of you. Uh, this is found, I think, on page, what is it, 39? Yes, 39. Um, we are at the end of the series. We're going to do this in two weeks, tonight, and then the week after Easter, we're going to do another one, last one in Genesis. So tonight's the, the beginning of the end, um, because these last few chapters deal first with the end of Jacob's life, which is what we're going to look at tonight, and then next time we're going to look at the end of Joseph's life, all right? And then we're going to wrap everything up. Now, I have to say this, Genesis ends very positively. Both of these chapters are beautiful. Jacob ends his life so well, which is so different than the way he began it, right? And we'll see next time, Joseph, although he doesn't necessarily have that many flaws of his own that are told in the Bible, yet his life does not go well. It goes into affliction uh, by other people's fault, yet his life also ends beautifully, wonderfully. And so we get, a, we get a chance these next two weeks to end the series thinking about what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live a new kind of life as a believer? So let's look, first of all, at verse 1 of chapter 48. Let me read, and then we'll, we'll talk. After this, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a, a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, while there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. By the way, there's a, if you ever go to Israel, there is a place still today that's called Rachel's Tomb. Uh, in this same area, still called that today. It's really cool. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected uh, to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it over the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys 
And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By Israel, you will, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I have took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And then skip with me to verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There uh, they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The word of the Lord. Amen. Um, I, I, I don't know when the idea of a bucket list first um, emerged. Maybe somebody in here knows better than me, but at least my whole life, people have been talking about a bucket list. Uh, what kinds of things do people normally put on a bucket list? Almost, you know, going to the Holy Land. That's on Bonnie's bucket list, yeah. It's usually trips and or events or experiences maybe sometimes even possessions like I want to get this before I die or whatever it's usually fairly material isn't it uh, there was a song several years back by my favorite Tim McGraw uh, in the song y'all know Tim McGraw y'all like country music we're in Mulberry so I'm allowed to talk about this um, live like you're dying was the name of the song which is also the name of the the message tonight and uh in the song, a man, the speaker, uh, got a bad diagnosis. He's going to die in a few weeks. And he goes on talking about how he began to live from that moment like he was dying. He, he rode a bull. Uh, he skydived. He went uh, Rocky Mountain climbing. And yeah, I'm looking to Stacy from my lyrics. We, we rock out the country quite a bit. And um, <laughs> hopefully that doesn't scandalize you, but uh, it doesn't me. Um, but it's the same thing. If you go listen to that song, it's all material. Now, that's, I understand, and, and I get it. When you know you're going to die, and everybody knows they're going to die, it's very important that you not waste the time you have. I get it. 
What's the flaw, though, in thinking that to live like you're dying means more material things and experiences? The Bible says there's a flaw to it. Yeah, very here and now, as opposed to... It's not, yeah, it's not based on there and then. It's not based on any view of life that stretches beyond death itself. Yeah. So it's, it's like you're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare to die by doing more things that I'm going to lose when I die. Okay. Um, that's one strategy. The Bible gives us, I think, a better strategy. For living like you're dying. And I think this story of Jacob shows you. Jacob in this story is old. Weak. We're going to talk about all the different ways here. He can't see. He's not strong. He's lost it all physically. And yet, Jacob has never been stronger. He's never been greater. This is his shining moment. And there's hope in that. The world can't give you that kind of hope. Only Jesus can Jesus says the older you get, that doesn't mean you have to grow weaker spiritually. You can go stronger as you get weaker physically. You can become a better man at your dying day or woman than you are at your young day. Everybody in the world laughs at that. Let's look at Jacob. There are three things here that uh, Jacob shows us that are truly living like you're dying. Okay, And everybody can apply this, whether you're old or young. Whether you're old or young. First of all, he lives by the Spirit, not by might. He lives by faith and not by sight. And he lives by grace and not by works. Y'all ready? Now, remember, as we're saying all this stuff, how long did it take Jacob to learn all this? Yeah, it's taken us 30 weeks just to read about it in here, right? (laughs) It took him years and years of his life, his entire life to learn these lessons. And so we shouldn't think these lessons are easy or cheap or that we'll have them overnight, but these are the lessons we got to learn to live like we're dying. First of all, spirit, not might. Uh, verses 11, or 1 through 11 in chapter 48 outlines for us all the ways that Jacob is physically weak. Y- y'all look down at your passage there. What all does it say? There are several things that show Jacob's weakness as an old man. Yes. It said it took everything he had to sit up in bed. That was verse 2. Israel summoned his strength. That's so dramatic, right? He summoned his strength. He he took everything within him and he pushed as hard as he could push just to sit up in the bed. And to pull his legs over the side so that he could sit there like in a chair to get ready to receive Joseph and these grand boys. Whom, by the way, he couldn't see. Because he had lost his eyesight. What else? Look at verse 1. Right out of the gate. After this, Joseph was told what? Your father's sick. Your father's ill. So not only is he weak, he can't even get himself out of bed, he can't see, but he's also got something wrong with him. He, he's ill. He's not just old, he's sick. He's on his way out. It takes everything he has within him just to sit up in bed. Now, when the world sees somebody in that situation, it thinks it's done. 
right? Uh, it's over. Uh, there's nothing more that they can do. Their best days are obviously behind them. That's what the world thinks, isn't it? And, and if we're honest, sometimes we think that. Their best days are behind them. When we think about a strong person, we think of someone who's young. We think of someone who's athletic. We think of someone who's in shape or whatever. But the Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible says here is a strong person. The person who has the ability to depend on the Holy Spirit in all circumstances. Including in the circumstance of lacking all physical strength yourself. And here's Jacob. Jacob shows his spiritual strength and weakness by the way that he speaks in verses 1 through 11. Uh, you can learn a lot about a person by how they speak about things. Y'all agree with that? And yeah, I understand. There are people who speak well and don't mean well. You can hide things by speech. But even the person that hides things by speech, if you catch them in a raw moment, if you catch them alone or you catch them privately, it'll come out. Because what Jesus said is true. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How does Jacob speak here? What kinds of stuff does he say? It's amazing. It's so different than what we saw when Jacob was a strapping young man. He did not talk like this. What does he say? Verse 3. God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz. In the land of Canaan, he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply, and I'll make you a company of peoples. And now your two sons, they will be mine. They're going to get brought into the inheritance that God himself gave me by promise. I'm claiming right now your two boys for God, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph, bring your boys to me. They're not going to be counted as yours. They're going to be counted as mine, and they're going to receive what God promised me. There's a boldness here. There's a boldness because Jacob is grounding himself in God's abilities rather than in his own. He's remembering a time when God appeared to him. There were several times that God appeared to Jacob. Sometimes Jacob didn't even act very good when God appeared. Remember when he was young and everybody would have looked at him and said, Wow, strong man. How did Jacob act when God appeared? He fought him all night long. He strove with him, you know, he took him, by, he took him and wrestled him when the angel of the Lord appeared. Here, he's reveling in, celebrating the glory of God and, and the glory of God's promises. And he's faithfully applying the glory of those promises to other people. He's sharing them with his son and with his grandsons. He relates uh, some of the story and then he gets back around uh, there in verse... Um, 11, and he says something else that's just amazing about God. He says, look, I never expected to see your face again. But, what? What does it say? God has let me see your offspring. What does he mean by that? He means... He did not expect, humanly speaking, that there was any possibility that Joseph would ever be in his life again. Remember, he thought Joseph was dead. Now he's acknowledging that by God's power, not his, not, J not Joseph's, not anybody else's, God's power, that he's now not only seeing Joseph again, alive, but he's seeing the fruit of Joseph's loins. The fruit of Joseph is standing there in front of him, his grandsons. He's giving the credit to God. 
He's not trying to steal it for himself. Jacob the trickster is now Jacob the worshiper. And this is a proof that a man or a woman can be getting physically weaker while at the same time getting spiritually stronger. Do y'all believe that? It's possible. In fact, God designs it this God designs, you know, he says things in the Bible like this. Gray hair is a crown. I think he even says the same thing about a bald head. I don't know. I, the book of Stan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the prophets was bald, you know, so we'll say Elisha, right? Yeah. It's a aging, according to the Bible, is a crown of glory. Not because all aged people are necessarily good people or spiritually mature people, because that's not always true, but because they should be. God wants them to be. God is calling them to continue to pursue him, and God himself is continuing to pursue them. Let's just review a few people. Uh, how old do you think Abraham was, or you remember this, how old was Abraham when he had Isaac? Remember? Three figures, yeah, 100. How old was Moses when he went back to Egypt to deal with Pharaoh and to get Israel out? 75. That's, neither of those are very young. Now you say, well, they lived longer. Well, they did a little bit longer than we do, but still, that's not young. In fact, the stories both make a big deal of the fact that he thinks he's too old to do anything for God. And God says, no, on the contrary. Actually, God loves to work through weakness. And this part applies to, the, to younger people in here tonight as well, because all of us have weakness, whether we're old or young. All of us at different times feel like we're not... We can't do what God is calling us to do. And guess what? We can't. But this is the reason why God calls us to do it. Because it's in our weakness that his strength is perfected, or better way to say it is his strength is made manifest. His strength is revealed when he works through weak people. Uh, J.I. Packer, whose um, books I commend all, always. I loved him. He died recently or a couple years ago. He wrote this in a book called Weakness is the Way. He said, for Christians, the likelihood is rather that as our discipleship continues, God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware. Did y'all hear that? God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware so that we may learn with Paul that when we are conscious of being weak, then and only then, May we become truly strong in the Lord. Application. If you're older, it is not time to coast. Amen? Yeah. If you're younger, uh, be careful how much stock you put in your physical self. It's all good when you're young and you feel like, man, I got all this strength and I'm going to go, I'm going to work out and spend all this time on the body. And I'm not saying it's bad to spend time on the body, right? But be careful of obsession over those things because it is passing away. And once it passes away, if all you've done in your young life is care for yourself physically and not spiritually, you will not be ready to be a Jacob. 
right? You've got to invest now spiritually. This, this is why Paul said to Timothy, who was young, younger than him, he said, bodily exercise is of some value. This is from the book of 1 Timothy. Bodily exercise is of some value. But far greater value is to pursue godliness. Because it has value not only for now, but also the next life. Now, Jacob learned this over a long time. Like I said, it wasn't something he learned easily. He learned it through much affliction. And it's going to take us a long time to get weaned off of the things of the world as well. But it's important that we try to. Because in life, if we look at it from an eternal perspective rather than a temporary one, it's not by might or by power, but by God's Spirit, says the Lord. And so we have to learn how to live by the Spirit, investing spiritually rather than just simply investing everything we have in our physical while the physical's intact because no matter how much you invest in it, you're still going to lose it. Right? You're still going to lose it. All right, second thing. Jacob learned to walk by faith and not by sight. And I think the story is set up to show us this. Um, you, if you look back at verse 10, it emphasizes the fact, this is a fact of, phys- of his physical life, that the eyes of Israel were dim with age. And he could not see. Ironic, isn't it? Remember what he had done to his dad when he couldn't see? Yeah, he, he tricked him and um, robbed his brother of his inheritance because his dad could not see. And here he is. This, this kind of stuff tends to happen, y'all. Here he is, old, and he can't see. And here comes one of his sons in to visit him. Now, thankfully, Joseph had more character than Jacob did at his age, right? Because he's not coming in to deceive. He's coming in to receive his father's blessing on his two sons. Jacob can't see. And yet, he can't even see to tell that there are boys there. He can't tell who the boys are. It has to be explained to him blow by blow, like a, some kind of like voiceover for blind people. You know, it's like he has to turn the accessibility functions on to get everything. You know, Joseph has to push the boys towards him. All, that, all those details are given to emphasize the fact that Jacob is sightless. And yet, is he clueless? Is he lost? Hmm? He's sightless, but is he clueless? He's sightless, but is he lost? No. In fact, Jacob has never known where he's at better than he does right now. He proves it. He takes the hands and he crosses them. And blesses them backwards. We'll talk about the significance of that in a minute. But he he blesses them backwards. And when he blesses them, he blesses them not by pointing to seen realities. Look at verse 15. He blesses them by pointing to unseen realities. Things that can only be known by faith, not by sight. I think it was uh, Helen Keller who was both blind and deaf, who uh, once was asked about um, her experience of being blind, and people were 
feeling sorry for her. And she said, you don't feel sorry for me because everybody knows the most important things in life are the things you can't see anyway. I think that was Helen Keller. I remember reading that in a little biography about her. Jacob understands that too. What unseen reality does he point to? Somebody tell me there in verse 15. He does it in triplicate three times. What does he point to? The God who? The God who? The angel who? The God who? The God who? The angel who? Again, this is not the world's way. Um, in, in the world's eyes, the wealthy, dying grandfather brings in the son and the grandchildren, and the son wants him to bless the grandchildren. What does the world expect the grandfather to do? Here's my will. You can have my property. You have my house. You have my fortune. You, you know, each of you get a trust fund. Bless, bless, bless. Trust fund, trust fund, trust fund. Everybody gets a trust fund. That's the world's way of thinking about it. Jacob, who can't see, though he is a wealthy man, gives to his boys the realities that they can't see either because he knows that the unseen were the most important. They were the most weighty. The God whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked, I give him to you. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, I give him to you. The angel who has redeemed me, and, and by that I think he means God. Um, and, and here's why I think that. The word angel in Hebrew and in Greek, which is Bible language, means messenger. It, you know, so it doesn't always just refer to what we think of as an angel. And so throughout the book of Genesis, we've seen the angel of the Lord appear to people. And sometimes when the angel of the Lord appears, people fall down and worship the angel of the Lord. They, uh, the, the, the angel of the Lord and the Lord, Yahweh, kind of are, are sometimes referred to interchangeably. So it's like the angel of the Lord is the representation of the Lord in visible form as he showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some uh, Bible scholars even speculate that the angel of the Lord was like a preview of Jesus Christ. The Son of God in visible form in front of them. And so when he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, he's saying once again, God, the God who has showed up to me, the, the messenger who came out from God and blessed me every time evil befell me. And he delivered me out of it. I give him to you, boys. Bless the boys. Uh, it's not about trust funds. It's not about, you know, stuff. It's not about bucket lists full of trips and things. This is about a God who becomes the God of his children and his grandchildren after him. Because Jacob, over long affliction, has learned to live not by sight but by faith. And so when he lost his sight, he was ready. When he lost his sight, he knew how to bless somebody. I don't know if there's any harder time to bless another person than when you don't feel blessed. Do you struggle with that like I do? When I don't feel blessed, man, it's so hard to get the motivation to bless somebody else. You've lost your strength, you're sick, you can barely get out of bed. 
You can't see? And yet Jacob knows how to bless somebody. Because Jacob has lived within the realm of the God of his fathers, the God who's been his shepherd all his life long, the God who redeemed him from all evil. He understands that the most important things in life are the things that can't be seen. His relationship with God was based on facts, real appearances and occasions when he actually dealt with him. Like we talked about this morning, Christianity is not just a theory religion. It's not just an idea religion. It's a fact religion, an event religion. And we see it with the the fathers of the book of Genesis like Jacob as well. They had real life encounters with God and those became the building blocks for the patriarch's faith. And here, the patriarch Jacob takes those building blocks and he builds on that foundation by giving to his grandsons. Wow. Now ask yourself this. If you lost your sight tomorrow, would you be ready? For some reason tomorrow you couldn't get out of bed without great effort. Maybe you're there already, I don't know, but if you, maybe you are. Oh, are you ready? Am I ready? I had to think about that a lot this week as I thought about Jacob, because I, I don't know if I am. Um, I want to be, though. I want to live like I'm dying. Last thing. Grace, not works. If you look at um, chapter 48, verses 17 to 22, I want to talk to you a little bit here about why Jacob crosses the hands. Um. Which, which boy is older and which is younger? Manasseh is oldest, Ephraim is youngest. Um, this was a big deal. I mean, it, it would probably be a big deal today, actually, um, but, but it was even more of a big deal back then. You know, the older boy always inherited things. And when you started messing that up, people didn't like it because that was just that was tradition. That was, that was just the way things were done. And the right hand meant the best, the left hand meant the worst. I'm sorry to all you left-handed people out there, but that's just what they thought. Right was good, right was right, left was wrong. And so, right or wrong, that's the way they thought. And so when Jacob put his right hand on the youngest, and then his left hand on the oldest, crossing his hands backwards, it displeased Joseph, it says. Now, now talk to me for a minute. Why do you think it displeased Joseph? Tradition. What else, though, besides tradition? Yes, thank you. Thank you. He thought his dad made a mistake. He's like, oh, here he, he can't see. Wow, I've got to, got to clean up for dad here. He, he's just all crossing his hands. He can't see. He can barely get out of bed. I mean, here you go, Dad. This is the way it's supposed to be done. He thinks he's correcting his dad. And Jacob, how, how does Jacob respond when he tries to correct him? <clears throat> I know, my son. <laughs> I know. 
Maybe you've had a conversation like that with your parents. You know, one tries to correct the other, and I know, son, I know, right? You can, you can kind of see it, right? This is a very common occurrence among parents and their children, especially as parents age. But J- Jacob is absolutely determined that the blessing is to be given the way he decided it was going to be given. Backwards. Why? Yeah, it could be. That's right. He was the younger. He was favored. There was resentment. Oh, you're doing it again, Dad. You're, you're favoring the younger again. Well, let's think about that. Why would Jacob favor a younger? He was the younger. And he was favored. Who favored Jacob over Esau? It actually wasn't his dad. His mom. Who else was it? God. God. Sorry I'm awkwardly drinking, but I barely have voice left, as you can hear. For some reason, I don't know. Dust or something. Yes, God did. God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I'm for Jacob, and I'm against Esau. I don't care how it's done in your culture. I don't care if the older is supposed to rule over the younger. It doesn't matter to me at all, God says. I choose Jacob. Grace, not works. Grace, not human merit. Not human systems of ranking. Not playground picking of teams. When you pick teams on the playground, who do you pick first? The best player. Who do you pick Last, usually, the not best player, if you know who that is, right? If you don't know who that is, it might be more random. But if you know who that is, you you do it usually that way. You do it on the basis of merit order. God's election of his people is not based on merit order. And there's something about the way God chose Jacob over Esau that over time in Jacob's life, he didn't get it at first. At first, he actually took it as a point of pride. It was like, well, I'm special, and I'm chosen, and woo, look at me. Over time, he realized what it really meant to be chosen of God. And what does it really mean to be chosen of God? I didn't deserve anything. And yet God, out of just sheer mercy, set his love on me. He elevated me from younger status to first place. He gave me an inheritance that according to human calculations, I did not deserve. And I should not have gotten. When Jacob says, I know my son, I know. I think there's more to that than maybe is on the surface. He knows. He knows the principle on which the Lord God Almighty deals with men and women. He's learned it. And it's not a principle of works righteousness. It's not a principle of ranking merit order. It's a principle of sovereign and free grace. And he wants to make sure that whatever happens with his children's life, and he's not trying to say that Ephraim is just chopped liver and he doesn't care about Ephraim. In fact, he says Ephraim's going to be great too. 
right? Or, or Manasseh is going to be great too, but Ephraim is going to be greater. He's not trying to put Manasseh out of the family, right? He doesn't have the power to do that. He's just the granddad. But what he is trying to do is to impress upon generations of his family the way God operates. And there's a lesson to learn here. One writer tells us, we will never be clearly persuaded that salvation comes from God's free mercy until we come to understand the principle of God's election of his people. In other words, let me say it a different way. If you think, or if I think, that I'm a Christian and the person next to me is not because there was just one little thing a little bit better about me versus them, right? I was just a little more willing than they were, or I was just a little bit more humble, or I just got the God gene, or I just, you know, I was just a little bit more moral, or or if I just have just one sliver of thing that makes me differ from that person that's mine, I will not live like it's based on grace. And I will, when I don't live like it's based on grace, I will look down my nose at people. Now someone might say, well, I know people who believe in election, and they look down their nose at people. (laughs) And that's true, right? That's true. But I don't think I've known anyone who really has been in their heart impressed with the free and unmerited mercy of God who has looked down their nose at people. Now, there are people who intellectually believe in election who are arrogant. I'll grant you that. But there's no one whose heart has been melted by the fact that they deserved nothing and received everything at God's expense that looks down. Grace has this ability to cause us to look up to God and down on no one else. It fills our hearts with respect for the Lord. It makes us want to pass that principle on to our children. We don't want our children to come up thinking that Christianity is a religion of merit. We don't want our children to think that Christianity is about God loves nice people and be a nice person and God will love you. We want our children to understand that the entrance into the kingdom of heaven for their mom and dad and the, Christian, and, the, and the entrance into the kingdom of heaven for them is based on the mercy of God and only the mercy of God. You are different than the person who's not a Christian today because God. That's it. You're different than the person in jail today because God. That's it. Right? Once again, how long did it take Jacob to learn this? How many years did he go through believing in election and being a real son of a gun? A long, long, long time, right? But by the time he died, it had hit his heart. And he was not going to die without making sure that that next generation knew it. And so when they grew up and everybody said, well, hey, wait a minute, I'm older than you. Why do you get this and I don't? Oh, let me tell you a little story about granddad. Twins were born. 
And while they were still in the, the womb, our great-great-grandmother was told, the older will serve the younger. Because Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Grace. You can uh, sign up to go ride a bull, <laughs> to jump out of an airplane, to go rocky mountain climbing, to go to Europe five times or however many times you want. You can sign up to, you can go to the gym and get rock hard. Bless you. But you will not be ready to die unless you learn how to walk by the Spirit and not by might, by faith and not by sight, by grace and not by works. Amen.